Product development is about so much more than just building a new product or a new service. The very best product teams are hyper-focused on creating effective solutions to solve real problems that their customers are facing. And as a result of this approach, not only are they more likely to find greater purpose in their work and to make more of a difference on behalf of their customers, but they're also much more likely to generate positive reviews, word of mouth referrals, and repeat business in the future. So with that in mind, let's explore five of the best product development tips from 281 business-related books that I've read over the last 22 years as an entrepreneur. Let's dive straight into the list, beginning with tip number one, the right way to gather useful feedback. Even before building a prototype or a minimum viable product, one of the very best ways that you can start to validate or even potentially invalidate your original product idea is to sit down with potential customers and to start gathering feedback directly from them. Now, unfortunately, the way that many people engage in these styles of conversation, the approach can often end up backfiring because when you share information about a product or service that you intend to build, what you're really doing is you're putting your ego on the line. You're explaining your idea. You're talking about it as if it's this amazing thing that you plan to build in the future. And this can really set people up to do nothing but offer passive encouragement because they want to be socially polite. They want to be supportive. They want to be encouraging. And so when you share your idea like this, when you put your ego on the line, you're far more likely just to get passive encouragement and blind support rather than blunt and honest feedback that can allow you to improve your idea or to, in some cases, invalidate it if it's not a fit for your target audience. So a better approach, as explained in The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick, is to talk with customers about their lives within the context of what it is that you plan to ultimately deliver to the market. So rather than talking about your product or your service and how it might come together, you focus on their life. You focus on talking about their day-to-day -day life and what it is that they're trying to solve, again, within the context of what it is that you plan to release. So a practical example of this. Let's say, for example, that you intend to build a brand new video guitar course that will be available online. So rather than talking with potential customers about exactly what your course will entail and how it will work and whether or not it'll include a mobile app or anything like that, rather than getting into the details of what it is you plan to build, you can sit down and talk with them about their life as it relates to playing the guitar. So for example, you might ask questions like, what has it been like learning to play the guitar? What kinds of lessons or courses have you tried? Did that method work for you? Why or why not? What challenges or obstacles did you encounter? Now, ideally, you want to prepare a list of questions for different kinds of potential customers. That way, when you encounter them in the real world, at a moment's notice, you can come up with some relevant questions to start gathering interesting information. So, for example, going back to our guitar lessons example, if you're intending to reach first-time guitarists and, let's say, inexperienced beginners and perhaps intermediate players, well, you might have different sets of questions for each one of these audiences. For example, when you sit down with a first-time player, you might ask something like, 
What inspires you to want to play the guitar? What has kept you from learning the guitar earlier in life? What kinds of lessons have you considered in the past? The goal of these questions is to gather as much useful information as possible as it relates to their life and the intersection between their life and the product or service that you intend to bring to the market. Now, as you engage in these kinds of conversations, you want to focus especially on concrete actions that they've taken either in the past or that they're currently taking, as opposed to future hypotheticals or things that they anticipate doing in the future. Because generally speaking, people aren't very good at predicting what they will actually do in the future as far as actions and commitment. So a much better judge of how they relate to your product or service is in the concrete actions that they're taking today or that they've taken in the past. So you wanna focus on these kinds of things so that you can get a better understanding of the world of not only your customers, but how that might relate to the solution that you end up building in the future. So by taking this approach, you can learn a lot more about your customers, you can validate or potentially invalidate your product or service, and in many ways, you can simply gather information that is necessary to improve and to iterate your idea even before you build your first prototype or your first minimum viable product. And to learn more about this approach, I highly recommend that you read The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick. It covers all kinds of practical tips and information about how to engage in these kinds of conversations much more effectively. Let's continue on to tip number two. Solve the surface first by building an MVP. Now, if you've been in product development for any amount of time, odds are very high that you've heard of a minimum viable product or MVP. This is a very popular concept as originally described in the Lean Startup by Eric Ries, but this is one of those ideas that is very misunderstood. Many people seem to believe that a minimum viable product is simply about making the simplest version possible of your product, getting it to market as quickly as possible, solely for the purpose of gathering generic feedback. So it's all about just getting version one out the door so that we can start to get information and feedback from customers to make version two that much better. But this isn't actually the purpose of a minimum viable product. The real purpose of a minimum viable product is to validate or invalidate core assumptions about the original product concept. So you wanna take and identify make or break elements of your product or service idea. You wanna convert those into testable hypotheses, and then you wanna build a minimum viable product solely for the purpose of validating or invalidating those core critical assumptions. And of course, you begin with the most important assumptions, and then later on, you can start to test other things that are important, but not quite as critical so that you can continue to iterate and improve the product. But you're not just trying to gather random feedback, you're trying to focus in on core elements of your product or service idea that if they turned out to be false, if your belief that customers would react a certain way turned out to be false, well then you could pivot right away and move in a different direction rather than over committing and wasting a lot of time, energy, and money putting together something that is ultimately going to fail. Now, when it comes to building effective minimum viable products, one of the very best approaches to help you get started is to focus on solving the surface first as described in Sprint by Jake Knapp. And the reason behind this, the logic behind this idea is that 
Oftentimes, one of the most unpredictable areas of a new product or a new service isn't necessarily in how you go about building the product or service or the technology behind it, but rather in how real-world customers are going to interact with the new product or service. So the surface that we're talking about here is the point at which your new product or service meets the customer in the real world. Because again, this tends to be where the greatest amount of uncertainty is. So you want to think about your product and identify key interactions that could potentially go wrong, where either the customer doesn't understand how to use the product or they don't get it or they don't understand the value proposition or for one reason or another, they aren't enjoying or making full use of the product. And typically, this kind of interaction makes for a very strong candidate when building out a minimum viable product. So I'll give you a practical example straight out of Sprint by Jake Knapp in which he talks about how Savvy Oak set out to test their relay robot. They were building a simple autonomous robot that would navigate hotels or hospitals delivering goods from point A to point B. Now, on the surface, it might seem like the most obvious challenge is building out the autonomous code needed for this relay robot to navigate halls, to navigate elevators, and to make sense of its environment when it's delivering things from a random point A to a random point B. These aren't predefined routes. It needs to have basic artificial intelligence to autonomously navigate what might be a very complex location, like a hospital or, again, like a hotel. But Savio correctly identified that the biggest challenge, the greatest area of uncertainty would be in how the robot interacted with real humans. So for example, using hotels, if let's say the concierge went to send something up to a hotel room, well, if the guest was confused about how to interact with the robot or if it was a poor experience or if they disliked it for any number of reasons, well, that would reflect poorly on the hotel and ultimately poorly on the product. And so there's no point in building out all of that advanced technology only to find out that the customer is not going to enjoy the experience and the product is no longer going to be effective and it's unlikely to be purchased by more hotels. So, so by identifying the fact that this was the critical interaction that they needed to master and to ensure would be effective, they focused their MVP around tackling common everyday interactions that they anticipated the eventual product would have to deal with. And so instead of building out the technology, they simply built a manually controlled, they'd have a joystick or something like that to manually control this robot as it approached, let's say, a hotel guest's room. And then from there, they had an iPad mini attached to the front of the device that would be used for interacting with the customer. And so it was a very, very simple prototype, a basic shell, an iPad mini on the front being manually manually controlled, but the entire point was to test the software interface on the iPad mini to see if it made sense, to see if customers would interact with it and understand how to navigate the interface and how to ultimately click the right button to open up the secure compartment to receive the delivery so that the entire experience would actually be enjoyable, where the customer walked away thinking that that was a good interaction and not just confusing or for some other reason, less than ideal. So with this example, 
example in mind, consider your own product or service and think about key customer interactions that could make or break the success of what it is that you intend to build. That way, you can identify these interactions, you can create your own hypotheses, and you can build out minimum viable products to validate those interactions before building out the rest of your product or service. And one great example of a very almost universal approach to testing a new product or service is in fact just to build a simple marketing website for the product as if it already exists. So long before building a prototype or anything else, you can simply create a marketing website that explains the final product or the final service as if it's available today. You can spend a little bit of money on a marketing budget, send traffic to that website, and get a better sense of whether or not customers understand what it is that you've built, whether they value it and would be interested in ultimately buying it. And finally, you can actually test how many of the people visiting the website click the buy button to show genuine interest even before the product or service is available. So it's one of the most effective ways that you can test almost any business or product or service idea with very little upfront investment. Let's continue on to tip number three, why it's critical to change customer behavior. The unfortunate reality is that many products and services fail to create an impact in the world. Whether it's a physical product that somebody buys and then just ends up buried in a desk drawer somewhere, or if it's an online service and somebody signs up fully intending to use it, but they never do and their account remains inactive, whatever the case may be, as product developers, we want to create solutions that people actually use, not only because it provides them with more value, but also on the back end, they're far more likely to leave positive reviews and engage in word of mouth referrals. So the very best product developers really focus on creating change when it comes to customer behavior. So for example, rather than setting out just to create a popular home fitness program, they aim to create the fitness program that people will actually use, that's more likely to cause the behavioral change required to have that potential customer use the program and engage with it in a consistent basis because, again, not only is this better in terms of providing value to the customer, but they're far more likely to spread the word and share and encourage other people to try the product as well. So whenever possible, we want to focus on changing customer behavior. And when it comes to accomplishing this goal, one of the very best methods is to use the intervention design process as explained in Start at the End by Matt Wallert. A very simplified version of this process can be covered in three simple steps. Number one, start with a clear sense of the behavior that you would like to change. Number two, create a behavioral statement to map existing pressures of the behavior. Number three, design, pilot, and test interventions to change or alter the behavior. So going back to the example I just mentioned, let's say that you wanna create a home fitness course that people will actually use. Well, the very first step is to get clear on your goal. What is the behavior that you want to change? And for example, you might end up defining that as helping the customer establish a daily habit to work out for 25 minutes. That is the ultimate goal. That is the behavior that you wanna create in the world. Then you can set out mapping the individual pressures that support the current behavior versus the intended behavior that you want to create in the future. Now, what you wanna focus on here 
is both promoting pressures and inhibiting pressures. So promoting pressures are anything that make a certain activity more likely to occur, and inhibiting pressures are the kinds of things that can make that activity less likely to occur. So for example, when it comes to promoting pressures, the kinds of changes that you can make to a product or service or to some other task that you're trying to encourage people to do would include things like raising awareness, adding incentives, or otherwise making a behavior seem more attractive. And when it comes to decreasing inhibiting pressures, you might focus in on things like eliminating steps, increasing convenience, reducing uncertainty, or generally making the task easier. Now, once you have a sense of the pressures that are at work when it comes to maintaining their existing behavior, and when you start to speculate about the kinds of pressures that might be needed to get them to change over to their new behavior where they're using your product or your service, that's when you can start to design test and validate interventions to change their behavior. You can start to come up with ideas that you believe will impact the way that they use your product or service. So for example, with the home fitness program, you might realize that by eliminating steps or making the exercise equipment more visible in their household and other changes like that, you might be able to alter their behavior and make it more likely that they will use your home fitness program. Now, very important to note that it's not enough just to think about these things. One thing mentioned in Start at the End by Matt Wallert is the temptation to gravitate to the initial ideas that come up as you start to explore the world of promoting pressures and inhibiting pressures. So as you start to brainstorm, you might think, well, that's almost certainly gonna work and maybe this other idea will work and it's very tempting to just start trying things or to start moving forward with your product as if you've come up with a proven solution. And in some cases, these ideas can backfire and actually negatively affect the way that customers use your product or service. So it's very, very important that you design test and validate ideas with real world customers before moving forward and assuming that those strategies will be effective. Let's continue on to tip number four. Ensure that you provide the whole product. There's often a big difference between the promise or the potential of a product or service and the reality of actually using it as a first-time customer. And in many cases, customers are expected to have previous knowledge or other products or other services to truly realize their expectations when originally buying the product or service or just to meet the expectations of how the product was sold to them in the first place. So a very important concept to understand when it comes to product development is the idea of the whole product as described in Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey A. Moore. This is a very simple framework for understanding the gap between a product's potential and the reality of using it in the real world. So let's quickly cover the four stages of product completeness. Number one, generic product. This is what is shipped in the box. Number two, expected product. This is what the customer thought they were buying. It's the minimum configuration of products and services required to meet their needs. Number three, augmented product. This is the product fully fleshed out to provide the maximum chance of achieving the buyer's objective. And finally, number four, potential product. 
This represents the product's room for growth as more and more ancillary products come on the market and as customer-specific enhancements to the system are made. So consider the purchase of one of the original e-reader devices from way back in the day, one of the very first ways to read digital content on some kind of a portable e-reader. Now, originally, the generic product that you probably received in the box was simply the e-reader itself, maybe a power cable, and maybe a manual. Now, this, of course, is what the customer paid for, but it alone does not deliver a complete product experience because what the customer was really sold on was the idea of reading popular books, maybe reading PDFs, and perhaps reading other text-based content. That is what they're expecting to be able to do. And so anything short of this doesn't really provide the whole product solution. Now, more modern e-readers that are available today from companies like Amazon and others, they focus on providing a much more complete solution. So for example, Amazon not only backs their devices by a complete store where you can buy most books and pretty much get any title that you want, they also make it very easy to email yourself PDFs and other text-based documents to read on the go. So this would provide the customer with more of a complete product experience. Now, it's worth noting they've went a step further, and if you buy the most high-end Amazon Kindle, you can actually, for a one-time fee upfront by buying the premium model, you get unlimited lifetime wireless access over the cellular network to purchase, download, and synchronize your eBooks. So now you don't even need a computer, you don't need to own a Wi-Fi network in your home, which might be something that you do or don't have at all times. You don't need to worry about anything else outside of the box. You do have to buy additional books when you want to read them, but even then, they do offer a Netflix-like subscription service for people that don't want to even think about buying books, who just want to pay a flat monthly fee for unlimited access to a set catalog of books where they can download as many of those particular books as they like. So this is a really, really great example of the difference between a generic product and a much more complete product experience. And of course, they can go even further by enticing third-party brands to make interesting cases or other ways to personalize your device further. But as you can start to see here, almost any product or service that you can imagine has various stages of being complete and providing a whole product experience. So with this example in mind, you wanna think about your own product or service. What is involved in getting the ultimate experience that customers are promised? Do they need other products and services? Are you assuming, for example, if you have an online video course that they have a computer or a tablet, how likely is it that they have these devices? In many cases, it might be very likely. And in other cases, you might find that it's not exactly accurate to say that everybody has exactly what they need to fully experience the benefits of your product. And when that happens, you can do one of two things. Either you can seek to incorporate that into your product to make sure you're delivering the whole solution, or you can look to partner with other companies where you're making it either easier for customers to discover the things that they need to get the complete solution, or as with Amazon and their cellular service, they make it completely invisible to the customer. They go and pay carriers and work out a deal so that when you get your Kindle, you're not even thinking about a cellular contract because Fortunately for them, book files are relatively small, so for a flat fee, they've worked out all the details for you. You don't even have to think about an ongoing subscription fee for your cellular coverage when it comes to a Kindle. So think about your own product. 
think deeply about what kinds of things people actually need and what potential gap there might be between the potential and the promise of the product and the reality of using it as a typical customer. Let's continue on to tip number five. Avoid fads and create timeless products. Many new products and services make an initial splash. They achieve limited success and then they quickly fade in popularity. They aren't able to build momentum that lasts over time. Now, some people look at this and they think it's just a sign of the changing times and people are have their shortening attention spans and we move from one product to the next and there are fads and there are trends. And so some product teams look at this and they think that the solution is to study trends and to be more closely following the latest fads and staying on top of these things to make sure that they can capitalize on them and ensure that they create products that suit the trends, even if that means at the end of the day, shortening the life cycle of their product and having to always chase down the latest thing, the latest trend. A better approach is to focus on understanding how to create timeless products as explained in Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday. In doing so, you can focus your efforts on creating products that are far more likely not only to stand the test of time, but actually grow in popularity over time. And much of this comes down to focusing on the stable needs and the stable problems that continue to create challenges or obstacles for your potential customers even as all kinds of other things in life continue to change. You're looking for what remains constant, what remains stable. So some practical examples of timeless products include physical products like Fender's Stratocaster guitar, movies like The Shawshank Redemption, books like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, consumable products like Oreo cookies, and even software applications like Adobe Photoshop. What each of these examples have in common is not only do they stand the test of time, but they actually, as I mentioned earlier, grow in popularity over time. Now, when it comes to creating a timeless product, the very first step is to get clear on who it is that you intend to serve. Who is your target audience? What do they care about? What is most important to them? Get very clear on who it is that you plan to serve. Once you have that nailed down, then you wanna start focusing on the things that remain constant over time. What are the problems that they've faced in the past, that they continue to face today, and that they are likely to continue facing out into the future? What kinds of products have they bought in the past? What kinds of products are they still buying today? And what kinds of products are likely to remain relevant out into the future? By focusing on these kinds of things, by looking for what remains constant and stable over time, you're far more likely to come up with interesting products and services that are far more likely to be timeless. And this, of course, can allow you to buck the trend of focusing on short-term fads, or on temporary trends, and instead create these kinds of products that are far more likely to last. And to learn more about this approach, I highly recommend that you read Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday. Anyway, those are five of the very best product development tips from 281 books. If you have any questions or comments about anything that we covered here, let me know down in the comment section and be sure to subscribe and visit rickkettner.com. That's where you can go to discover the very best books for entrepreneurs. 